can come from anywhere, and anyone can like it, so let's be more inclusive. Brilliant Inclusion is me, Simon J. Green, a storyteller with cystic fibrosis. And me, Lisa Green, Head of Communications at Arts Access Victoria, talking with artists, audiences, activists, and critics about the challenges and joys of art and disability. Joining us today is Bridget Canny. Bridget is an emerging filmmaker from Melbourne who is passionate about storytelling, technology and innovation. Bridget is also directing a film for SBS's National Youth Week campaign, which you can check out in April on SBS. Um, Simon and I met Bridget through the Other Film Festival, which is Australia's leading inclusive film festival, where she was a panellist and featured filmmaker with her short film Mom's Place. Bridget was born with ocular cutaneous albinism, uh, which you might commonly know as being an albino, says Bridge. Uh, you can find her on Twitter at Bridget Canny. Let's get to it. All right. Thanks for joining us, Bridge. Thank you for having me. I guess um, we've given you a little intro, yeah. but can you maybe start, Bridget, by telling us you're an emerging filmmaker? Mm-hmm. How did that start? That's a great question. So um, I think I started my career kind of in the social change and community engagement space and probably through more direct programming um, with young people. Um, And I think a couple of years ago, I realised there was this theme threading throughout my career, which was all around how you use personal narrative as a tool for advocacy. So I'd worked with young people in out-of-home care around how they use their stories of care as a kind of systemic change tool with policy change or um, I'd worked on projects around emerging the personal narrative from um, in a political issue or whatever it might be and um, I think film to me stood out as like just a way to do that at scale like I think um, I'd studied cinema at uni but more from a kind of like funny arts gender studies perspective um, and wasn't never really saw myself as someone who could be a filmmaker Um, I think maybe like I think maybe a lot of young women have like oh I'm not a creative like I'm not brave enough to be creative or whatever it might be. Is that what it was that you weren't sure about being a filmmaker that just wasn't for you or? Um, I think it was like partially that being a vision impaired filmmaker was like quite funny and Mm. I think I was like oh (laughs) I can't really see that well how could I operate a camera or whatever that might be Um, but then I also think taking the step to believe that your taste or your stories are kind of worthwhile is probably a confidence issue as well which Mm. I think took some overcoming but I think I found filmmaking I just I got put on a project at work that was about um it was called Propeller Project it was funded by Samsung and operated by the Foundation for Young Australians and it was all about telling the stories of ordinary young people doing extraordinary things across Australia and so I kind of fell into it I ended up traveling around Australia, living in all these caravan parks, producing like 28 short films um, with young people of all different kind of walks of life about their experiences. And then kind of, you know, through submerging myself in that industry, thought, oh, this is actually something I want to do. And then ended up studying at the VCA and kind of that gave me the technical confidence to pursue it more. Do you think that's a good way for anyone to start any sort of art is to just be thrown into it yeah I think as well like we all have um I think we all have like really interesting stories in us and unless we're forced to like if we're given a constraint of like you have to write something on the page today or like you've got this thing to produce by the end of the month or um you're sitting you're in a workshop and together you have to come up with an idea I think that kind of 
being pushed into it can be really useful because I think otherwise you sit on you kind of get analysis paralysis as I like to call it where you're like you're too scared um, and you become too critical to kind of push your ideas forward but I think as well like being on set having to be on set um, like doco sets with literally it was me I was producing there was a director and a DP and that was it and yeah. so being pushed into it being like you have to hold the boom or like you have to watch the rushes you have to make a creative decision um, it forced me to realize one I loved it and two that it was possible and it was accessible do you think it helped you break out of I think a lot of people who don't take the leap and throw themselves in have that perfectionist mm. thing where they don't want to do it because they can't do it perfectly or great straight away yeah and doing it when you're forced to just finish something by the end of the day makes you realise nothing's ever perfect. Totally. It's like that, um, yeah, it's like perfection is the like enemy of progress. Like yeah. you can, yeah, I think it can really halt you. And I think as well having like had to do, we, we shot like 16 docos in 10 months or something. Like it was wild. We were on the road. How long were the docos um, They were each like three to four minutes. Yeah. But still like that amount of travel, mm-hmm. um, I'd be in like Perth and then I'd be in Darwin and then I'd be in Bairnsdale and like it was just quite wild. And I think it forced me to be like not no one piece has to express everything. Yeah. You actually like you'll make a film this time and it'll be about you'll get this one shot right and you can walk away going, that shot was awesome. Yeah, maybe my script was average. Yeah, maybe that performance wasn't great. Maybe I like edited that poorly. But you take the one thing from that project. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of starting out filmmakers, they put a lot of emphasis on their first thing or any creative. You're like, this piece has to tell my like grand meta narrative yeah. of my life and everything has to be perfect. And So you mentioned before that I think not just as a, a young person, but particularly a young woman, yeah. um, often I feel that we're kind of conditioned to not think our stories are important, mm. not think that you know, we have a unique voice. Mm. Um, so you've made content for other people. Mm. What was kind of the trigger for you to make your own content? That's a really good question. I think um, that was really hard, like not yeah. responding to a brief and being like <laughs> not interpreting someone else's story and then just being like, oh, I know how we can make that work and make you happy. Um, I think it is a real shift. I think um, and there's a lot more, I felt a lot more pressure from myself and a lot more self-consciousness making my own content. Um, and I procrastinated a lot more because I think... A con- true artist. Yeah. <laughs> I think content that you have to make for someone else, you're kind of in service of them. Yeah. And so you, you know, want to keep someone happy and you like put a lot more into it, but then prioritising your own work is hard. Mm. Um, I think... So I have a really strong community of... Um, people who I've made stuff with or who I value their opinion or um, have done creative projects with and my partner's also um, a creative and it's kind of good to have to force like I try and talk about things before I'm ready because then you're kind of forced into like a progress loop yeah is it does it it sounds like having a community around you helped having just a group of friends or because for filmmaking there's more people yeah do you think that would also apply to that sounds like it's a good key for someone who does a more solo art form like painting or writing, having people around them. Totally. I think like I'm a very story first filmmaker and I think like I would be open if there was a better way to communicate a story that wasn't film, I'd go with that. Um, Surrounding yourself even with like a multidisciplinary community can be quite good because it forces you to focus on the story and the statement. Mm. Like what are you trying to explore? Like and then medium second like... 
And then, then when you have those conversations with your friends, I suppose you have to keep reiterating that. Yeah. You have to keep saying, what am I trying to explore? Because yeah, they might not time. get it straight away, I suppose. Yeah, or just like um, I think it like forces you to interrogate like what are you trying to say? Mm. Like rather than just what is your what is this piece of art or what is this creative expression trying to say? Rather than like getting attached to like, oh, and then I'm going to use like this amazing camera. It's like yeah. peel back. What are you trying to say? Like that comes first for me. As a, I'm a producer, so I tend to work with writers and directors and stuff. And particularly out of film school, particularly people who might be DPs, the first thing they will start to think about is mm. that shot mm. in their head. Oh, I'm going to make this shot. It's going to mm. be so good. And when you started to ask them, what's the why does that shot represent the character or all mm. those sorts of deeper questions, it kind of unraveled a little bit because they hadn't done that yeah. work first. And um, I think that's really important for any artwork as well is what are you trying to say? then everything builds on top of that. And when someone hasn't done that thinking and you talk about the work, you can tell. You can tell that it's not under the surface, that they might just be fixated on oil paints for today. They've never used oil paints before. But what are they exploring and doing? It it means you can talk about it afterwards as well. Because that's – and that, I guess, that leads me to another question. As as an artist, having a career – and talking about your work is important because you have to sell it. You have to sell even just the idea to your friends, but also you've made work that's been on SBS and getting those things across. How have you gone through that process of merging the two? Look, it's the challenge. <laughs> I think for me it's about finding like centering less on job title and more on like the skills and like what skills do I get to use every day? What kind of environments make me happy? Like I know that working in a team makes me really happy. I know that working for purpose-driven organisations makes me really happy. And um, I might not be working on films every day, but if I'm working on – if I'm using skills that I can use in filmmaking and skills I got from filmmaking Mm -hmm. every day, then that's like exercising my artist side every day. That's fascinating how – like that is the challenge, but I've noticed when you start thinking of it in those terms, there's so much work yes. that is out there yeah. if you start to broaden your mind on how you can apply those skills. It sounds like what you were saying about the artwork, which is to know what the under-the-surface mm. deeper reasons are, the same about knowing that about yourself. Yeah, I'm a really big believer in like the changing world of work and I think we're moving away from like having single careers and more towards like having portfolio careers um, where like – we have a few different jobs or we work, you know, there's this stat about like we're going to have five different careers in our lifetime. My dad was always so upset that I changed jobs every three years. He's like, what are you doing? I'm like, this is how it is now. Yeah, it's really different. And I think um, that like I actually like that because I'm there's so much I want to do that I'm like, oh, it's just for like each job is or each career. I'm like, this is my now career, but I could, you know, I try to really centre when I'm thinking about work I do, I try to think like what challenges do I need at the moment and what skills do I need to develop at the moment. Speaking of going where things take you, yes. I just wanted to touch <laughs> the kind of topic that we wanted to talk about today is about the kinds of stories that you do tell yeah. because um, the film that you had shown at the other mm. film festival um, was made by a filmmaker with disability but was not about disability. Yeah, And that was a really uh, – interesting experience for um the other film festival crew as you know curating a collection that was really overwhelmingly about the lived experience of disability and it was a really um refreshing and engaging panel discussion that you had with simon Mm -hmm. about that experience of being a filmmaker with a disability 
and making art that doesn't necessarily reflect that experience but maybe informed by it. Yeah, for sure. I think, um, and that was such a good discussion. I think I was saying before, I think like both of us weren't like hadn't really maybe spoken a heap about it before, but then when you start talking, you're like, oh my gosh, there's so much there that I haven't really said out loud, but I think a lot. Um, I think like growing up with a vision impairment and with um, in some ways an invisible disability because my vision impairment, I think like as a survival tactic probably, like as an adolescent or a child, I learnt a lot of skills to kind of hide or conceal my disability and only make it visible when I chose to, just as kind of a way of fitting in and not drawing attention to myself. Um, like living with albinism you do draw a bit of attention because you're really pale so I think like and as someone who's like doesn't love the limelight I think um finding a way to conceal that was useful I think that's really common Mm. a relatable experience as well Mm. um you know people I know who have conditions like epilepsy Mm. or people who uh, are on the autism spectrum Mm. they've I think got a similar experience to you where there's almost a camouflaging aspect Mm -hmm. where you kind of learn to look you know like everybody else and talk like everybody else but there's still something there there's something totally um to reveal or to not reveal yeah um and I guess yeah I really loved hearing you two talk about Mm. that because it's not a perspective that's um spoken on often totally and I think like there's power in passing like as much as um as much as like it's challenging because I think sometimes you want to be like you want to signify that you belong to the a particular community whether it's people with disabilities or you know about your sexual orientation or whatever it might be there is sometimes you want to signify that you want people to know that because sometimes it's easier because you don't have to constantly out yourself as being like, hey, by the way, I can't see that or, you know, yeah. whatever. But I think, yeah, there is also extreme privilege and power that comes with passing because it means you get to choose on which terms you identify yourself. Um, and I'm really aware of that privilege and think about it a lot because, um, yeah, it means you can have this slippage between two worlds. Huh. Um, I've never do you heard, think about that? I've never heard passing used for disability. Yeah. I've only heard it used for – I've only ever heard like it used queerness. with uh, – or no, actually just with uh, uh, people who were of mixed race mm. and could pass as the dominant race yeah. in the country they were in. Yeah. And they were just talking about how they would pass. Yeah. And some people could pass – maybe it was even in a documentary about um, singers, about mm. backing singers, and it was a, a, a black woman who could pass oh, a little bit more. Yeah, 23 from Yeah, such a good doco. Yeah. And I never thought of it from the disability yeah. perspective. Do you think that in camouflaging and passing and having that power, is that something that you were subconsciously portraying or, or chasing in the film you made with Mum's Place? No. No? No. I think, um, like, I think there's two things. One, there's, like, that passing and um, how you identify. But I think there's also something that, like, a lot of the time when you are, like, a person with a disability or of a particular race or queer or whatever it might be there's this like assumption that your stories are always going to be about that thing and you don't get to have this multiplicity that other people get to have Mm. um so like for me feminism and like themes around family are like and women's role in family is like something I'm really interested in I wrote my thesis about like Mm. 
something I've thought about a lot. And so actually those are the stories that seem more obvious for me to tell. Yeah. And then when people are like, oh, you're going to make content about your disability, I'm like, oh, of course, you, uh, maybe. Like, <laughs> it just, it. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like it's just this, um, it's like this is a feminist filmmaker who makes stories about women who also happens to have a disability. I think one of the interesting um, questions that came up during the panel discussion, um, and you can check those uh, comments and questions out on the Arts Access Victoria Twitter feed. Um, <laughs> Excellent. Which, which I run. Um, <laughs> was, you know, what you guys were talking about, you don't want to make films about disability. That's your life. That's boring. Mm. And I think one of the kind of... Um, devil's advocate comments that was made was well I want to yeah disability is interesting to me that's my life I want to see it on screen how do you guys feel about that well I've actually like now I'm embarking on a project about (laughs) disability so I think maybe that panel was quite significant in making me reframe some stuff really maybe I think like um it's that whole thing about like you won't when you start seeing yourself through other people's eyes you're like oh that's interesting yeah um So I think, like, I would like to make some content about disability, but, like, as part of the suite of things that I'm able to talk about. And I think you're probably in a similar boat that, like, um, maybe, yeah. Yeah. I I definitely think about it, but I think about it more the – if, if, if everything's working the way it should in society, then you just get to do the thing that you're after and that you totally. want to explore. And for me, I just always think about what I want to explore. And at the moment, it's not my disability at all. Totally. That's why if someone did want to make a film about their disability, they should be totally free to explore it and not feel that either they have to talk about their disability and that's it or that they have to not talk about their disability because of what I say because yeah. I come from the other camp of I like to make things that aren't about disability. Yeah. I want them to have the freedom to make that choice. Yeah. Um, and so I, I'll probably just keep making things, but I like to represent, I, I like to make genre work that's all about fun, explosion, entertainment and fun stuff that I grew up liking. That's the main thing I focus on. What do I, what did I like and what do people around me like? That's what I want to make. And I try and rep- I just try and represent them in that story. I think it's interesting, um, with Simon, you want to make films that are very genre very, um, fun and not related to your disability. But I think in other areas of your life you're a really staunch and vocal disability advocate so there's kind of a balance there you kind of get to out yourself mm. in, the, in the context of passing and and you know talk about that experience and your creativity is separate to that yeah there's the stories I tell and people watch and I want to make stuff they are entertained by but I want to try and get people on the crew that have disabilities mm. because they also like doing that too. That's They're like me. They're like, I love action movies. I love sci-fi. I love those sorts of movies. I'd love to be a part of it because I remember in our panel there was a, a young woman in the audience who wanted to work on films, but I think she was fairly heavily restricted by her body. And I think we talked to her about filmmaking is a crew thing. So if she can find crew to work around her, it's a lot of – kind of passing off a lot of those problems to other people collaborative collaborative collaboration is sharing benefit of everyone everyone totally and she would have so much fun that was the thing i didn't want her to not have is the fun of being on set um and so for me accessibility is making it possible for people to have fun totally i really relate to that and i think um it's this whole thing about like your method and your message so like Mm -hmm. you could um make a whole bunch of content that's like saying really explicit things about inclusion or you know um understanding race in a more complex way or whatever it might be or 
and or you can also create environments which enable everyone um, to participate in in storytelling and then you ultimately bring those messages to the surface in different ways too. It's yeah. like the mic is handed around in a different way and I think like for me um, I, I was thinking recently about how like – what parts of my disability I bring into filmmaking and I think a big one is around like never assuming a certain um like level of like never assuming a certain ability so I'm always really conscious of like you know um making sure that I schedule breaks on set and like Mm. making sure that I make sure it's a calm and welcoming environment not a stressful angry environment making sure that people I've spoken to everyone on my set beforehand so they feel like there's a connection there but also things around like you know I kind of prefer to do blind casting like my then it doesn't need to be a race written into my character like you don't have to you know this has to be this person this has to be this person but even things around um like thinking about yeah how do you just like assume a base level of inclusion as much as you can and I know there's like always ways to do it better but um I think that method side of things can be really important too well that's interesting just quickly on on that method and there's always ways to do it better because I think a lot of people get daunted by doing it at all. Mm-hmm. I think they don't think that way that you just mm-hmm. expressed of there's always a way to do it better. It's doing it in the first place is going to be difficult. It's just too hard. I don't have enough budget. Like I've got enough time. All those kind of reasons. Yeah. that. But then the things you just listed were super easy Yeah. and kind of are things you're supposed to do to be yeah. a good producer, like totally. calling people beforehand, yeah. making a set have breaks. Yeah. You're supposed to, like legally you're supposed to have breaks. Uh, yes, correct. <laughs> <laughs> But even things around like, um, oh, just like really small things like, um, you know, when you speak to someone like asking, do you have a preferred pronoun? Like things like that that are so like, you know, and for the people who don't need that, they'll be like, oh, of course it's this. But for the people who that means something to, that's huge. And you've immediately said to them, you're welcome here. Like It's interesting. um, At the 2016 Melbourne Fringe Festival, um, the there was an award for outstanding access mm-hmm. and there was some amazing entrance into it people who had you know Auslan interpreted mm-hmm. events they had large print programs mm-hmm. um, they had captioning it was great but the winner was um, it was Mama Alto Productions mm-hmm. um, and it was for a show that you know wasn't super accessible on the outside uh, it was it was good accessibility but the real gold was in the production team and how inclusive and open and engaging they were with diverse communities and that's something I think you know when we talk about representation on screen it's also so important that we're talking about Mm. what's happening behind the camera what's Mm. happening behind the curtain where is you know the value in in um, bringing emerging creatives through that path as well what do you mean? What was their crew very diverse? It was they? very diverse. They were um, really inclusive. They were collaborative. They reached out to lots of different um, diverse communities. They got in, you know, when it was when they oh, were developing about, the concept. yeah, and when in talking about um, accessibility for the show, they were really proactive, and the award was really a recognition of that of of people going out of their way to say everyone is welcome here mm. everyone can be part of this we will find a way as you said it to someone like me who is a middle class white cis lady mm. without a disability i'm like well yeah it's m- m- Miz and blah 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 but mm. 
it means something to see it on on the paper and to get that phone call or to find out that you know your producer has allocated additional breaks yeah I think it's about like the next phase of (laughs) reframing it again is like seeing it as a real advantage like I think we're still probably in a place where like it's like oh it's a good thing to do but I think like actually it makes your content so much better. Yeah. I was, like, just, I was thinking exactly that as Lisa and was like, saying it. If you like um, – I think something I think about a lot is like how do we move beyond like dominant and singular narratives and move to like these rich and like conflicting and sometimes like polarising narratives where like you might have two stories side by side that are about someone who – two people who might – be from the same community but like they have these diverse experiences and like you only get to that when you have multiple people representing multiple things um and like where you create spaces where like someone doesn't feel like they have to be the spokesperson for like (laughs) all no one's token no women or you know whatever and I think um it means that you're able to explore a range of experiences and that makes your content better. That makes your content more original and authentic. I mean, that's always my argument for for feminism, totally. for having equal representation of women, is diversity means better stories, more representative stories, richer, more compelling stories. Yeah. You know, the, I want 50% women on boards because mm. women bring something different to a corporate table. It's and ideas as well. as It's yeah. ideas, it's perspectives. And, and I think that that's equally true of, you know, people with disability or chronic illness or mental health issues or who are deaf. It's such a, everyone has such a unique experience, but, you know, when you're talking about you know, people with disability, um, it's so much more marginalized mm. that it's, it, it's that much more imperative that they'd be part of that process yeah something I've been thinking about a lot so I'm directing a mentor directing a film this weekend with a young woman named Amy um and she has a disability and she um like really thinking about our audience and not automatically assuming that it's up to us and up to this film to make her disability really consumable to a mainstream audience Mm. like not always putting the power back in like well we have to help people without disabilities understand disabilities like actually like putting the storytelling power back in with her and saying like what do you want to say that's unique to you you don't have to speak for all people with disabilities you don't have to um help people understand like actually (laughs) what do you want to say that's like really unique and that is like only you could say like that's super exciting to me and I think we are at a point at the moment one thing that I've noticed in kind of social commentary around diversity in general is that assumption that if I stand up and speak for women, I must be speaking for all women. If Simon stands up and speaks for people with CF, he must be speaking for all people with CF. And and I think that that comes from the fact that we're not hearing from enough people who are yeah. women or have disabilities or have mental health issues. Um, so that it wouldn't be – so that eventually yeah. the, the normalisation would be, oh, that person no has one, an opinion. Not, no one looks at a yeah. white man and is like, I bet he speaks for all of them. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> can you tell us what the rest – all of you think? Yeah. Like, you're, yeah. Um, there's a – yeah, you're granted individuality. Yeah, like you're you're granted um, like in like independent 
you know, voice and things like that. Um, I really see that connected to, I mean, one of the reasons Bridge and I connected is we both think about audience first before we yeah. make our content. But And for me, that came from looking at, I mean, I've grown up, we've all grown up in a time where Netflix and, and YouTube have come on and there's a lot of this discussion about there's not one audience anymore. Mm-hmm. Like TV was, there were four channels and it was for everyone. But everyone was really just the dominant group of people that totally. got the ratings. And the nicheification of media means you have to start thinking about these different little mini audiences. Totally. And they have power because they choose to watch that piece because it's about them because they have choice. Whereas on TV or on radio, they didn't have those choices. And that's originality. That opens the door for originality. And there's a great the, um, uh, Ed Catmull from Pixar goes and talks to, to students in universities and he always says, what's more important, ideas or people? And people put up their hands and usually it's a 50-50 split. And he says, look, I, I tricked you. It was a false dichotomy. <laughs> yeah. Ideas come from people. Yeah. People are the most important thing. And it made me think when you're talking about diversity of opinion and viewpoint, it's also ideas. You get different ideas from someone with a different background. One of the uh, artworks you're going to talk about later in the show is literally because his point of view is different. Yeah. His, his literal point of view. And I think it's also to that point about the nicheification of media, it's also the democratization of creation. Um, you know, YouTube and Netflix to an extent. Um, and, you know, cameras, having cheap, cameras yeah. on our phones yeah. means that anyone can make a movie. It might be, you know, really shitty quality, but anyone can pick up a phone and make a movie. Anyone can record a podcast. Anyone can write a blog post. Anyone can create content that is their story. And I think that that's, you know, incredibly powerful and exciting. Thank God for the internet. Yeah, yeah right? Which um, is accessible. It's totally. broadly accessible in that dual meaning. Yeah. And I think it kind of loops back because I think when um, production falls into the hands of more people, story mm. first yes. becomes even more important mm. Yeah, because it's not just about like having the most expensive equipment or having the most beautiful kind of lenses or whatever. Right. Actually, like people are going to judge your content on like, does it relate to them? Does it, Is it say meaning, something meaningful that they haven't heard before? Yeah. And I think that can be quite – like I think I really like that. I really like that it kind of elevates story. We were ta- you were talking about giving power back to the audience and one of the things I found looking at, at, at work by people with disability isn't about disability is there's a YouTube channel called The Daily Moth and it's just the news but in ASL, in, in, in American Sign Language, and it's got no captions – if you are, if you can't read ASL, you can't watch that show. And I think it really puts the power back on people who speak ASL. Mm. And it's no dialogue, nothing, just ASL for the news, the daily news. And I thought it's called the Daily Moth and it's really cool. I think that's playing out in other ways as well. Like, I mean, um, I think when Beyonce's, I'm going to speak about <laughs> Beyonce yet again. Please bring her up. But bring, when... Um, if you didn't, I would have. Yeah, exactly Queen right. B. It has to be back. <laughs> but um, when Lemonade came out, like... I watched that as a white woman um, and was like, this is amazing, but it's also not for me. Yeah, I had Lisa exact, said the same thing. Yeah. I had the exact same reaction. And I think maybe because like not to – I think this is – I don't know. This is just my view, but I think perhaps because as women we've watched a lot of content that's not for us, um, taking that point of view was – didn't feel super hard. No. I'm sure there's a lot of other white women who couldn't do that and didn't do that. But I could enjoy it. Yeah, for I sure. I was like, this is awesome. For what it is and just say, this is not for me. Yeah, exactly. And like still loved it but also knew that the resonance of some of the messages I would never be able to comprehend and that's actually totally fine. Um, and I think we are seeing with the democratisation of media creation that um, more voices and like it actually is 
but I think there's a backlash as well because some people are like, I don't like that album and it's like, was it? Yeah. And it's and it's okay that you just don't like it. Yeah. That's, that's, I think people struggle with that sometimes. Even even artists struggle with the idea of like for example, don't make it for yourself. Yeah. As the artist, make it for someone else. And yeah. then contemplating that there are people who think differently to you. Totally. Which seems silly, but there's not one taste. Yeah. 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 It's not a hierarchy. Mm-hmm. It's like yes. actually there's like all these it's like all these different verticals yeah. of taste. It's you just know? a flat structure of taste. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's just like if, if you wanted to tell a story that was not story-based but was purely visual, totally. if you had that intent, that's the thing you're making. Totally. Um, and one's not better or right no. than the other. It's just how, it's like how much did you – yeah, yeah, how successful were you in achieving your intent? Totally. That was what you would judge it on yeah. next. Yeah. yeah, it's really cool. It's like I think we're in a really exciting time when it comes to that stuff. I hope that – and I think – we're at a time and I hope it doesn't shift too much towards the tokenistic but like where people are seeking out more diverse stories and more diverse content creation which maybe it's just like my inner Melbourne lefty circle but <laughs> I feel like hopefully that is shifting in no, some I ways. I so. I mean well, even in right-wing houses there are people with disabilities and, totally. and of different backgrounds. And they want to see themselves on screen. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I mean if this last election has taught us anything it's that people from diverse communities can still be like right-wing conservative people they can still like totally. the establishment can still yeah. be diverse yeah exactly and still want to engage in yeah. um, diverse storytelling and watching those stories absolutely we have definitely covered off the internet is great <laughs> creating content is great art is great um we know more about bridget now we know a lot more about bridget thanks guys so one <laughs> of the things that we that we kind of want to do in each episode is explore some art or creative process or creative outcome that relates to what we're talking about. So um, today we're talking about artists with disability making art that is not necessarily about their disability. And Simon and I have checked out a little something each. Simon, did you want to go first? Yeah, the thing I kept, because I I come from a screen background, so I think that's where I kept drifting. And it seems that Channel 4 in the UK is doing a really good job of their inclusion. They have all sorts of programming, lots of different shows. They started with specific programming about, it was like it was designed as specialty programming for people with disability. And so it was, you know, people with disability would make it, would watch it and make it and be a part of it. But they've actually been so successful in what they've done. There's a woman named Alison Walsh and she has rheumatoid arthritis, but she's in charge of this push. And she's against quotas, which I thought was interesting. And instead, she's just been pushing so much within the programming of having people with disability in different parts of the programming that they're starting to shift away from specialist stuff and into just having disability people with disabilities included in the general programming work. Mm. And they're actually phasing out the specialist stuff, which I thought was interesting mm. because that means they must have progressed quite a way to I get mean, to that stage. Let's let's be real. The UK, in terms of their inclusive and disability arts practice, is pretty much light years ahead of Australia. Like, they seem way better. Um, Are you familiar with them, Bruce? No, not really. So it's, I know it's, Lisa, you it's have. It's pretty epic. They're killing it. Yeah, they, they're, you know, they're, they're doing a good job. Mm, yeah. Um, and I think that it's, you know, really interesting because what we uh, really focused on at Arts Access Victoria, for example, is inclusive arts practice. It is, you know, engaging artists with disability on their own, in their own right, doing their own work, but it's also about you know, mentoring them, um, pairing them with artists without disability who maybe don't have the barriers to entry that they have experienced. Um, And 
uh, you know, looking at mainstream arts organizations and producers and saying, well, you know, here's how you can incorporate people with disability. Here's how you can engage them in various ways from kind of front of house all the way back. I guess it's not just popping them out onto their own, isn't it? And it's not just saying, it, off you go, and you make know, art. It's, it's, the, it's that constant... Um, it's kind of a mirror of a conversation that happens a lot in education, which is do you have specialist schools for for children and young people with disability or do you, quote, mainstream them? Um, and so I think that it's a really interesting kind of conversation to be having in entertainment. And, I mean, I am firmly on the side of, yes, get people with disability, with mental health issues who are deaf onto sets, get them, you know, behind the scenes, get them writing scripts, get them in front of the camera. Well, one of the one of the key programs they had was a show called The Shooting Party, and it's basically Project Greenlight, but all the different crews who are struggling to make films in a short period of time have disabilities, and they're making it a battle sword, you know, whatever tickles their fancy, which is what we've talked about. They just make whatever they're making, but they have short timelines, they have tiny budgets, they have to make these films all together in the, the same tense Tiny budgets, short timelines? What? So, yeah, so unrealistic. <laughs> <laughs> um and they kind of use that, though, as a training ground for people that end up working through the program. They go work for Channel 4. And so I saw this interview from a young lady named Nikki Fox. She was 28. She has muscular dystrophy, and she did the show. She did the series. And she got picked up to work as the junior researcher for the company that makes How to Look Good Naked. Oh. And ended up developing her skills and became a head researcher at that, wow. at that show. But it was interesting because they said one of her strengths, because of her background, we all develop strengths from background, mm. was empathy mm. because she was so used to having to That's talk with so people real. about aspects yeah. of things. That's the biggest thing, I think. Like the most common, like I think everyone I've met who lives with a disability, um, like everyone's experience <gasps> is so unique. But the one thing that I've heard come across every time is like it's just given me a much more open mind and a much deeper empathy yeah and it just makes me think about how who are we leaving out like that's a question I take into anything I do that's like a common theme I've heard from I think that's so real yeah Yeah. beyond just disability all sorts of different anytime you're othered you then think about who's othered I think that would make them better at, at mentor. One of the things I think sometimes in film in Australia is it's not very good at bringing the next generation up. Totally. But mm-hmm. if you're someone who's very empathetic. No, it's good at bringing the literal next generation as in, oh, I'm someone's kid. I'm yeah. famous kid. <laughs> you like can come to make up now. Movie. Yeah. It does yeah. that very well. <laughs> I think Nick Cave's kid's doing some stuff. Yeah. <clears throat> um, but uh, if you are just thinking that all the time, then you're constantly looking for the person below you to come totally. up and, and looking for opportunities for that person who... Yeah maybe has nothing particularly going on in terms of disability or race or just the next person to also bring you up into the industry. And I think that's really awesome because it really does reframe disability in strength. Like Mm. if there's superpowers, whether they're empathy or like inclusion or like having a really unique perspective or story that I can, that people with disabilities can say like, this is actually what makes me awesome. Don't feel sorry for me. Like I've got all these skills that I've had to develop that I'm really proud of. And, and that's really good. And and they may be part of yeah. my disability. They may be completely different. Totally. They may be shaped by that. And I yeah. think that that's where uh, the – Simon and I have often talked about this. Simon is a person with disability. Mm. I am a person without. So mm. I'm always – and, I you know, I work in the disability sector. Mm. I'm always super conscious of, well, what can I – say what shouldn't I say and my thing is just always you get headaches (laughs) (laughs) my thing is always just you know I can't tell you what's right what your right story is to tell and 
all I know is that if you have a unique voice, if you have a unique story, I want to see it mm-hmm. and I want to hear it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel really, the world's a kind of depressing place at the moment, but Big I time. look, at, not to sound old, but I look at the young people <laughs> oh. and I feel really hopeful because yeah. I think what you were saying, Bridget, about who am I leaving out, that's something that just seems more innate mm-hmm. to the next generation. They're just, you know, empathy is such a buzzword at the moment mm. and I feel like it's trickling down and, you know, I look at conversations that are happening with young people at the moment and empathy is so core to that and, and diversity and and making sure that they're not responsible for leaving anyone behind. Yeah. I think it's a – in some ways I think it's a biological imperative. The work we do – I work at a company called Huddle and we look at sort of future trends and what's happening in the world of work and – one of the things we're kind of realising is that we live in these large cities, these big societies, but there's this idea of the Dunbar's number. I don't remember the specific number, but it's only over just over 100. I think it's 150. There you go, 150. Yeah. yeah. And it's the number of people you can maintain an effective yeah. social yeah. network with before it starts to fall apart. Yeah. Oh, God, mine is like 12. <laughs> mine, I think mine's smaller too, I think. It's like the people I live with. Yeah, yeah we are sub-Dunbar. Um <laughs> But we've been talking about whether our evolution is the next step in our evolution as humanity is to start to get better at that, to increase Mm. that number, because we're in a city of, what, two, four million people in Melbourne alone. And 90% of Australians live in cities. In In cities. cities. So are we trying to, is empathy becoming a buzzword? Because it has to be, because Mm. we have to start learning how to get along better by understanding one another, which comes back to people with disability having a strength. Mm, I think so. And I think it's this thing of like where you've experienced like, hostility or just like incidentally being left out mm. whether it's like you know you're at the hairdresser and someone's like and do you have a boyfriend you're like no I have a girlfriend like yeah. um or whatever it might be when you've had those experiences over and over and you've seen how like subtle ways that you're excluded I think you think about you're just a bit I don't know I would hope that you're a bit more um intentional about like checking your assumptions and like checking your privilege big time mm-hmm. i would hope so i would really hope so you don't want it to happen to other people the yeah thing that happened to and you felt you felt that the way that people with good intentions can still say and do crappy things mm-hmm. so like it, you just become a bit more aware of the complexities of inclusion it's not just about being nice or being mean it's actually yeah. about like intentional practical things you can do every day yeah. to make sure that you're leveling the playing field or I think yeah doing every day is such an important little set of words in that statement too because inclusion is a practice diversity is a practice it's something that has to be done every day you know um is that what is that what someone means when they say practice for those who aren't used to that word let's say when we're talking about inclusive arts practice yeah what does that mean making art that's about making inclusive art from kind of you know putting the word out to people to collaborate Mm -hmm. to presenting the work in an inclusive way which is accessible through Auslan interpretation or wheelchair accessible seating or anything but I'm talking about actual practice I'm talking about the repetition of a behavior until it it becomes learned Yeah. yeah inclusion is a practice um, I have been working in the disability sector or in um, the health sector for over a decade. And I guarantee you at some point in the next 30 days, I will write a flyer or something and I will forget to put an access icon or I will forget to book an Auslan interpreter for something because access is a practice. Inclusion is a practice. That's interesting too, because in practicing, you have to accept that you'll sometimes fuck up and, I and think, that you won't do it right. Because you're practicing, you're getting used to it. And that you're on a journey, like mm. that you're never going to be like, I've learned that 
Done. Done. I've yeah. got my tick and I'm fine <laughs> now. It's like – What have we done that ever? Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And like I think that's also – part of like I try to really think about that when like I'm like I'm a young bisexual woman who also lives with a disability but I also like there's a a, I have a long way to go so this is sometimes I see in the disability sector Mm. a lack of there's a lack of patience with practice with taking your time and sometimes screwing up and I one of the shows I looked at was a show called cast-offs over in Britain which I really want to check out more of It, it was behind a paywall but it's, it's a satirical show. It's a bunch of people on an island and they have to survive, one of those sorts of shows. But everyone has a disability and is played by someone with that disability. And so there was people of small stature, people with uh, shorter limbs, people in wheelchairs, uh, someone with cherubism, so lots of different disabilities. But it was written by the guys, uh, some of the people behind Skins, The Thick of It, and Shameless. Right. And it's... It's deliberately going for offensive jokes yeah, right. here and there. And I thought it was really interesting because if I had anyone represent me, it would be the writers of those shows because they're so sharp and go into – they make fun of things to make a point. Mm. But it got a lot of flack. It got a lot of heat. So what do we think about that? What do we think about sometimes when people are trying to be allies and trying to represent us in different ways mm. and people get upset about it? Well, I think it's like there's two things. One, like – it comes back to this idea of like beyond the singular representation and beyond the singular narrative. Like just because you have one person with that disability in the show and they said it was okay, doesn't mean other people with that disability can't be offended. Like yeah. it's enabling multiplicity. Yeah. Like not one person speaks for all people. Yeah. So I think there has to be a level of comfort that like you don't get an just because you consulted like three people of color doesn't mean you ca- you can't still be racist. Like mm. you know, yeah. I think <laughs> like you need we need to be Sometimes okay that, that like makes you more racist big time and like. I think, like, you need to – I think it needs to be okay that, like, there is – we are so diverse even within our disability space or whatever. Like, it's okay that you can make a piece of content that, like, some people with disabilities love and think, I'm so glad someone's taking the piss and so glad that, you know, someone's saying the things that you shouldn't say – but someone else also is like, I find that really offensive. Yeah. I think that's totally okay. Like yeah. I think hoping for any piece of content to like make everyone feel good mm-hmm. is kind of tokenistic. Especially when the concept is built in to have offence. Totally. Yeah. And even when it's not, I mean, my feeling is <coughs> when you create content that has a stance, that has a viewpoint, you're probably going to offend somebody. Mm-hmm. And as a content creator, you kind of just have to accept that and be okay with it. Um but it's also about the way – like if I take offense to something, I try – I don't always succeed. I try to take it as an opportunity to talk about it in a really constructive way. So instead of just saying, well, that's you know sexist and offensive and I hate it and I'm going to boycott your company, you know, I want to have a constructive conversation with someone or, or make a constructive point. Mm-hmm. And I you know, I hate to use the term, but like we do live in a bit of an outrage culture where mm-hmm. – Everyone's offended by everything. Um, I don't think we should make things that are deliberately offensive. But I do think that we need to look beyond the offense and and say, okay, well, what's next then? Mm. You know, okay, so you've done something, you've made this mistake, you've used, you know, the wrong language or you've made the wrong assumption. Mm. What's next? Mm. How do you educate and elevate the conversation instead of just halting people in their tracks because, you know, particularly I've been looking um, at the Women's March and a lot of kind of the feminist activity that's been happen- happening lately and really 
feeling a bit disheartened by the alienation of allies. Mm. And I think that that's something that is relevant across all diverse communities is how do you maintain allyship but also ensure that that the people you're trying to be an ally to have the main stage, totally. have the yeah. opportunity to, you know, say their thing without you talking over it, which is what I'm doing right now. I think – no, not at all. I think there's <laughs> there's something in that, but I think there's also, like, this thing that, um, like, it's constantly in flux. So, like, there might be days where I'm capable of having – like, making a constructive – so something that happens all the time and it's really, like, not that important but funny is people during summer also always say, oh, can I stand next to you because I look really tanned because obviously I have no – very little pigment and so they're like – you. so essentially they're saying – you make me look good by oh comparison. God, yeah. And, like, it's kind of fucked. Like, like when I think about it at a basic yeah. level, I'm like, that's awful. Yeah. But then there's times where I'm like, hey, I have the end. And it's, this is so – I'm not comparing this or conflating this with, like, large-scale aggression or whatever. It's just an example. Yeah. Um, there's times where I have the energy to be like, yeah. hey, that's a bit shit. This is why, blah, blah, blah. And there's other yeah. times where I'm like, don't have the energy. And I just – let it go or there's other times where I get angry because that's how I'm where I'm at at the, that time and I think there needs to be space as well for that like fluidity because I think sometimes you have the energy to educate and other times you're just like nah like don't have it in me today like not you're not mine I'm not being paid for this yeah this is emotional labor that I've already expended so many mm-hmm. times I don't exist to educate you and like I want to help, but also like maybe look it up on the internet. I think that's the responsibility when it's a bunch of people yeah. who consider themselves allies, then they're supposed to be trying to work out one another's thing and have their own proactivity. Totally. In it yeah. of, okay, so there's a bunch of stuff I don't understand, yeah. but I'm saying I'm an ally to this group of people. Yeah. I'm saying I'm progressive. So then I should go work it out. Yeah. There was a great segment on a podcast that I love called <coughs> Call Your Girlfriend. Oh, I love that podcast. Um, Anna and Amina, I love you. Um, they're your friends aren't you uh, my good kind friends of Anna and Amina <laughs> like we listen to their calls every week <laughs> every week um, and they recently had a, a, a listener write in about an issue that she was having about kind of some sexism and some conservative uh, some not conservative some right wing people in her life and Amina who's a woman of colour was just like you know what I don't have the energy to explain this to you yeah and I was like yep that's really fucking fair yeah because I totally get what you mean like some days it's just like just Fix yourself. Yeah. yeah. Deal with this yourself. And also sometimes it's like um, like sometimes the conversations I have with someone at length who I don't really know where I explain to them and they ask really personal questions about living with a disability mm. and I really like on a generous day, like I'm a, I think I'm quite a generous person and I try to really like give of myself but some days I'm just like, I have had this conversation hundreds and hundreds of times and you were going to walk away like bettered and probably (laughs) tell all your friends about how you had this amazing conversation with this woman and how it really inspired you and like I'm going to walk away kind of tired. Yeah. And like, mm. oh, God, I had that conversation again. What was the transfer of energy on that? Emotional labour is such a good term for it. So I work in the inclusive art space. Um, I see a lot of art by artists with disabilities. I see a lot of work that I love by artists with disabilities. And um, so when we were thinking about this episode and thinking about, okay, well, let's look at some art that's not about disability. I was like, I don't find that easy. And then I realized that 
all my favorite pieces of art, all my favorite um, theater productions, my favorite dance pieces, my favorite music by artists with disability is all about their experience of disability in one way or another to varying degrees. It just really made me think about, okay, well, what's some art you like? And maybe one of those artists has a disability. (laughs) And it actually worked. It worked. Um, One of my favorite artists is Chuck Close. Um, who is a photographer and a painter and now a, a tapestry, a tapestrist, mm. tapestry a tapest. man. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, right. a tapest. Sure. Um, like Spanish. Food. Like the small Spanish man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he has been creating work since I want to say like the mid sixties. Um, and he does portraiture. In fact, he is quite famous for reviving the art of portraiture in a time in the US when um, abstract expressionism was having quite a moment. Um, and I love his portraits. I love the big, I have a thing for large scale artwork. I just really love it. Um, and I like faces. I like looking at people's faces and expression and stuff like that. So he's always been one of my favorite artists. And I knew that he grew up with dyslexia. And I'm going to say this wrong. Prosop prognosia which is facial blindness um and so knowing that i thought it was quite interesting and then in thinking about it for this episode it kind of added on this whole extra layer because that can't be separated from his work so his work isn't about disability it isn't about people with disability he very rarely he never references his disability or his learning difference in work but it's so inextricably linked to it i mean he takes photos he's a man with facial blindness who takes photos of faces amazing and even he himself he said that it was never a conscious decision to do portraits and it took him 20 years from when he started to realize that the reason that portraits will always have an interest and an urgency for him is because he doesn't recognize faces and i just thought that that was you know a really interesting perspective and even his process i think is quite tied to Um, his learning difference so he uses a grid system to do his large-scale paintings which can be as big as like nine feet tall Um, and I just found that really interesting because working with people who have learning difference um, like dyspraxia or dyslexia repetition and pattern and consistency is Mm -hmm. a very important element for them and I just thought here is a guy who works within a grid but then also brings in these kind of abstract methods into each cell of the grid so Mm -hmm. You know, he's injecting this interesting, um, colourful, unpredictable effect in this pretty scientific and precise grid. And you were saying his work had changed in here because it's kind of like if you got the artwork there for... Well, well, well. Yeah. Now we're getting to the bit where he had a stroke in 1988. Right. And so he went from being a person without disability but with learning difference to being a person with disability and learning difference. He is... I'm not sure what his physical status is at the moment, but after the stroke, he was essentially a quadriplegic um, and he had to relearn how to paint by, I mean, he taped the brush onto his hand and just figured it out. And he said to his family that if he can't paint, he'll just spit on the canvas. Um, But his work has really evolved. um, And I know we'll, We'll wherever we post this, we'll we'll post some of the work. Um, One of my favorite pieces is a portrait called Lucas. Cool. And I think it's particularly interesting because it is a very large scale portrait um, of one of his friends who is also an artist. 
And, you know, it's got almost a pointillist style to it from far away. It's such this clear portrait of kind of a Nick Offerman looking dude. But then you go up close and it's this like riot of color and... Almost like red blood cells, little tiny red blood cells. Or pixels, it looks like. Yeah, Yeah. it's quite a pixelated um, effect. And I just think it's beautiful and interesting to think about, okay, he's adapted his style, but he hasn't changed. He works on the same scale canvas. He does the same kind of work, but he's just really adapted it to suit, you know, his new access needs and what his body can do now. Um, And I think like um, there's that sentiment that like constraints can produce creativity. Like if you try and be like, I have to write a script about set inside this house or doing with this thing or whatever, that can be really useful. And this is another way that like a constraint has like heightened creativity. Yeah. I I kind of link it to you, Bridge, when Lisa was telling me about it because he, Chuck has had to, Chuck literally sees things differently. Mm. And so he what he does will always be original and unique because it is completely unique to his literal viewpoint. And you were talking on our panel about how you have to work with, you have to like, you had to learn to trust a DP to see the vision for you, but you had to express your vision in such a way that most people don't do it. Most people don't do it that way as a director. They're, you know, sometimes they're taking well, they over the role of being a the, DP. They can just like front up yeah. to the monitor and be like, yes, no, yeah, you know? Yep. Yeah, I think that's really true. I saw a film last year at Sydney Film Festival called Notes on Blindness um, and there was a – the way that they were able to express – it's about a, a true story of a man going blind um, and they used the real recordings of his – he recorded tapes, journals on tapes and they used the real audio. Um, but the way that they changed the cinematography as he was going blind to emphasise different things made the film so fantastic because it's like he there's this scene where he goes back and sees his parents who he hasn't seen for a long time and now he's quite blind, not um, totally blind but a lot like he was perfectly sighted. And um, you never see them in the shot. You only see shadows of them or like you see them over his shoulder but they're quite blurry but it's like not it's not trying to replicate the blindness it's just a cinema like it's a decision with the cinematography but the way that they've used that constraint to produce like this really interesting visual and style well thank you very much bridge thank you very much for joining us thank you for having me when you said before that you consider yourself a generous person oh yeah sitting here chatting with us for an hour well thanks for having me it's been awesome i can't wait to listen to more stuff yeah now what have you got coming up again to remind everyone listening very good Thanks for the plug option. So um, we're directing, I'm working on a film with a young woman named Amy. She's incredible. Um, The film will come out on SBS during Youth Week, which is in April. There'll be four other stories from young people across Australia who have a unique experience of identity. So check them all out. So that'll be TV. Will it also be on their catch-up program? It will. It'll be on, um, I know it'll be on SBS too. um, And then it's also via their social. And then the unique URL is um, SBS Learn. Beautiful. And they yeah. can check out your other film you did with SBS. Still yeah, is online. Stephanie's too. story from last year. I produced that story. So that's still there. Lovely. Awesome. And your Twitter handle again? What is it? It's at Bridget Canny. Yeah, yeah, it is. With a G and an you I. You never and have a D. to write your own. You have, never I have know. to write your own Twitter handle. I had to look it. up what mine was. Yeah. <laughs> so B R I G I D. Like frigid, but with a B. <laughs> Canny. C A N N Y. Thank you very much, Bridget. Thank you so much. Bridget. No worries. Thank you. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Brilliant Inclusion. You can listen to previous episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Just search for Brilliant Inclusion. You can also find us at simonjgreen.com forward slash Brilliant Inclusion. And you can find me on Twitter at Lisa Green Tweets. And you can also find me, um, Simon J. Green, on Twitter at Simon John Green. That is J-O-N, no H. Um, and if you do listen to us on iTunes or Stitcher or even SoundCloud, leave a review, leave a comment because it really helps us out. And don't forget to share us. Tell other people. Tell other artists. Tell other arts practitioners. Sharing tell is other caring. Tell people with disabilities. Yes. Let them know that we exist so they can enjoy and learn with us. Till next time. <laughs>